Good morning and welcome to today's PSA programming here on KNCI, KCCO, KYMX, and KHGK. Operated by Bonneville International, I'm Cody Robinson. My first guest is Issa Nadoy with Happy Niami, a marketplace and cafe in Rockland that provides micro shops for local artisans and small businesses to showcase their products and ultimately bring the community together. Thanks for being with us. Could you introduce yourself and provide a little background on what you do? Hey, Cody, this is Issa Nadoy. Um, I am one of the business partners with um, Happy Niyama. We are a hub for our local vendors and bakers. Um, we enjoy bringing uh, all of our local vendors um, a good spot for them to showcase their, their products. Fantastic. So what is the overall concept of the store? So we've got a 2D concept. It looks like you're walking into a cartoon, and we want to bring in our local vendors. Someone gave us a start when we first started, um, and now we want to turn back and give back to our community. Oh, I love this. Now, where are you located? We are at 11015 Suite 9 in Ranch Cordova, California. Great. And how did you come up with this concept? Is this something that you've seen before? Um, it's not something we've seen before here in Sacramento. What we're doing is kind of cutting edge. Um, we've seen it back east a bunch, um, but nothing here in Northern California. So what exactly is it? It's a storefront where you're allowing a bunch of different vendors to come in and set up shop? Absolutely, yes. We are a, we like to call them micro shops or micro bakeries. So we're reaching out to our local vendors and bakers and, and letting them know we've got space for them. So we're there renting shelves and renting space in our bakery case. And they're dropping off their products and, and we're open six days a week. Now, what items do you offer? Uh, so right now we've got Kehlani Cakes. Um, we've got Baked by Olga and she's got Ube-inspired baked goods. Um, we've got Happy Max and more. That She's got some Asian Fusion-inspired baked goods. We've got Pineapple Botanical Bliss. We've got Soaps and Body Lotion. Me Crafted, who's got um, some Asian-inspired sweaters and bags, stickers. Um, we have Crafts Etros Amor. Um, so she's got tumblers, yarn picks. They are animal crocheted plushies. Got it. Now, why is it important for you to bring these small businesses together and offer this space to them? Yeah, so we what we found is that we're building a community. So if we all work together, everybody can, can survive and everybody can grow and thrive. So by making it a hub for everyone to drop their things off, we can get the word out that there are these wonderfully made handcrafted items that people can come and take a look and and help our community. Got it. And these are small businesses that don't otherwise have a storefront, correct? Absolutely. So it, we, we realize that some of these, when you're starting out, there isn't a whole lot of space for our stores and that you can go into and put your stuff in. So it gives our local vendors a place to put their stuff and get a good start. Now, is it free for these vendors? So there is a rental fee, but what we're doing is we're not taking a sales commission or any um, other fees on top of just the renting of the shelves. Okay. Now, what is your goal for this store? Our goal is to grow the community and and to bring up other vendors. Uh, like I said, someone gave us a start three years ago, and what we'd love to do is just turn back and give back to our community and help grow other vendors um, in our community. Love that. And what do you hope to accomplish within, say, the next five years? In the five years, I think we want to open up more, more of these uh, shops so that we can get it out and have more space for other vendors and keep growing and building the community. And I believe our next one is that we want to um, have a space where we can teach classes. Awesome. Where can listeners get more information on becoming a vendor? They can visit our website at happyniyama.com. We've got a tab there for them that says partner with us.
And where can listeners get more information on just your storefront and how they can maybe come in and visit? Yeah, it's best places to follow us on our Instagram at Happy Niyama. That way they can keep up to date with us um, and or check out our website. Great. And could you spell that out for us? Totally. It's H-A-P-P-Y-N-I-Y-A-M-A. And is there anything else you'd like to add? Just that we're looking for more vendors and um, more bakers to come join us. All right. Thank you. If you would like more information on what we discussed today, visit happyniami.com. That's happyniami.com. If you have questions regarding this program, please direct your correspondence to public affairs and care of this station. My next guest is Dr. Elizabeth Clotus, a cardiologist and founder of Step One Foods, which is a product line that helps lower cholesterol using food, not just drugs. Thanks for being with us. Could you introduce yourself and provide a little background on what you do? Sure. So I'm Elizabeth Clotus. I'm a practicing cardiologist. I trained at Mayo Clinic and Johns Hopkins. I've been in practice for almost 25 years. And um, in, in addition to my practice, I also started a company, Step One Foods, that helps people reduce their reliance on medications for conditions they could solve with food. Fantastic. So let's talk about Step One Foods first and foremost. What are these products and what made you want to start this line to begin with? So, you know, when when I went to medical school, I didn't set out to start a food company. You know, I yeah. went to medical school because I wanted to cure people. Sure. And honestly, to do that, I spent a lot of time learning how to prescribe drugs. But as it turns out, the conditions that I treat, you know, like high cholesterol, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, these are not caused by a lack of drugs. These are all caused in part or in whole by the lack of the correct food. Um, And if you're going to cure someone, you really have to address the root cause of the problem, not just cover it up with a bunch of pills. Um, And, you know, and kind of getting to the topic we're going to discuss today, which is, you know, how to not be duped in the grocery store. I mean, what I realized was my patients, you know, were trying to eat better, but they were failing. Mm. And it wasn't all their fault. Um, And so I decided to, you know, that someone had to provide them with foods that are truly effective, not that just make claims, but, you know, ones where the claims are actually backed by real science. And that's how Step One Food started. And our first line of foods really is meant to help address high cholesterol, which affects 94 million Americans. I mean, it's kind of crazy how many of us have this issue. Yeah. So talk about some of the products that are in the line. First of all, these are the same types of foods that people are eating already and buying already, right? Convenient things like instant oatmeal, pancake mix, granola, snack bars, and they're made from real whole food ingredients. These aren't funky powders. These are real foods. But what's different is that they're specifically formulated to lower cholesterol, to actually Mm. affect a health change because we combine the right ingredients in the right amounts, right? So, um, you know, so so these foods are very nutrient-dense and just two small servings a day can impact cholesterol levels. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. And, you know, and this is, you know, the whole idea was not to upend how people live. It's just help them do what they already do, be way more impactful and better for them. And what's really exciting is that what we've shown through rigorous testing, the type of testing reserved for evaluating pharmaceuticals through trials carried out at institutions like Mayo Clinic, that eating these two tiny servings a day of step one foods can yield highly, highly significant cholesterol reduction in just 30 days. Oh, wow. I mean, we've seen 
Yeah, we've seen people drop their LDL or bad cholesterol by 40 plus points. Now, not everyone's going to have this effect, but look at what's possible with food. I mean, these are medication level reductions. And for people who can't take cholesterol lowering drugs, don't want to take cholesterol lowering drugs, or they're not a goal despite maximum tolerated doses, I mean, something like this can be a game changer. And it's just food. It's just food. Yeah. Now, I think I already know the answer to this question, but would you argue that nutrition is a better solution to, say, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, high sugar versus medication? So I'm not anti-drug. I prescribe medications all the time. But what I would say is that unless you address the root cause, you have no chance of, of, of truly curing someone and healing them, sure. right? Medications in many ways are, are you know, they cover things up. They're, they're just pretty wallpaper on crumbling walls. You have to fix the walls. Um, so so I, I see it as, as two things coming together, but foundation is nutrition and food affects everything, right? Like you think about Lipitor or statins. I mean, these are one hit wonders. What do they do? They lower cholesterol. What does eating right for cholesterol do? Well, it lowers cholesterol. It also helps you lower blood pressure, improve blood sugar control, lose weight, right? Food is the, is, is the comprehensive solution to a complex problem. Mm-hmm. And, and if we change the, the food environment, look, we, we exist in a very dysfunctional food environment. We are surrounded by hyperpalatable, nutrient-poor, calorie-dense foods that are you know ubiquitous. You can find them everywhere. They're advertised nonstop. They're cheap yeah. and convenient. Like, what could go wrong? And it's the health of our country is what can go wrong. So, so we have to find a different way. And that's what Step One Foods is trying to do, something different. Got it. Well, I love that. I love the sound of it. Now, what should people be looking for in their food to help improve their health? Are there certain nutrients that are better than others? You know, if I were to summarize what the best diet is, you know, everyone's different, right? Like some people do better on a higher protein intake. Some people do better on a higher carb intake. It's not one size fits all. But if there's a general eating philosophy, you know, the the best I've ever heard is seven words long. And it's and I didn't invent it. It comes from Michael Pollan, who's written multiple books on on nutrition. And it's actually the subtitle of one of his books. And the and, and the book is In Defense of Food. And the subtitle is seven words long and it's eat food meaning eat real food food that your great-grandmother would recognize as food right. she wouldn't recognize 80 percent of what's in a grocery store these days right mm-hmm. so eat food not too much right there's no need to stuff ourselves at every meal and then mostly plants right and and if the major if you eat a plant forward diet so that the majority of what you're consuming are beans and lentils, leafy greens, fruits, vegetables, grains, nuts and seeds, all in their most whole and unprocessed forms, you're going to be fine. You want to have some chicken? Great. Have some chicken, you know, cook it from scratch if you can. You want to have an egg from time to time? It's fine, right? It's But the preponderance of what's landing on your plate should be plant-based, whole and real. 
Now let's talk about labeling on foods. I know we've all seen low calorie, low sodium, light, natural, organic, and I've read that these can be misleading. So what are the different types of misleading health messages and labeling on food packages that shoppers should be aware of? It's funny you you mentioned a couple of of the ones that that I kind of rail against, right? Low in sodium helps lower cholesterol. Only 100 calories per serving, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, and yet as a cardiologist, all I do all day long is you know treat high blood pressure and high cholesterol and people trying to lose weight, right? Like this, this should tell you something. And, and I think the biggest lesson we can take away is don't look at all the health messages on, on food packaging. These are more marketing types than straightforward nutrition guidance. They are designed to sway a purchase decision, which mm-hmm. is in a grocery store typically takes three to five seconds. So my first rule is the more the item shouts about how good it is for you, the more skeptical you should become. You know, after all, right, like the the healthiest foods in a grocery store, all those fruits and vegetables somewhere at the back of the at the store, you know, carry no claims at all. So the claims don't help you. Interesting that these labels are even allowed. Do they follow FDA guidelines? Yeah, so so it's very interesting, right? So there are guidelines around fiber, you know, around sodium, things like that. So different levels get you to, you know, to to make a, a statement about that food. But, you know, for for example, you know, reduced sodium, what does that mean? Well, it means that the that this product has 25% less sodium than the original item. Okay, well, that's good, right? It's, it's less sodium, but if the original item had 1,000 milligrams of sodium per serving, which is not unusual for like a can of soup, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the new version or the reduced sodium version has 750 milligrams. That's actually not that much of a reduction given that the recommendation is that we all should be eating, you know, consuming under 2,300 milligrams. So, you know, your the can of soup was half. Now you're maybe at, you know, a third, wow. but, but it's still a lot of sodium. Now, what tips do you have to become a better food shopper and navigate today's deceptive food landscape? Well, I think my first big rule is always read the ingredient panel, right? And right. and I guess, you know, it's impossible to do this for every single product you put in into your cart every single time, but gradually get familiar with what you're with what's landing in your cart. The more that ingredient panel list sounds like it came from a chemistry book, right? The less <laughs> of it you should have. I mean, some of the some of the ingredients, to be fair, are maybe fortifications and vitamins can sound like chemicals, but Foods that need a lot of fortifications are foods made from ingredients that are devoid of nutrients to begin with. Mm. So, you know, adding a lot of vitamins to a highly processed sugary breakfast cereal doesn't make it automatically good for you. Right. right? And then my other, you know, my other piece of advice is that the nutrition facts panel doesn't give you all the facts. It hides important information and tells you nothing about where those nutrients are coming from, right? So fiber, for example, right? You may be like, oh, look at this is very high fiber, but but the fiber comes from inulin, which is an additive. And and that, you know, and it's and it's you know presented to you in a bar, for example, that also has trans fats and six types of sugar and all, you know, like the delivery vehicle matters as well. And, you know, and, and even around sugar content, um, sugar, you know, isn't bad if it, 
comes from whole fruit. You know, in some cases, you might see a higher sugar content in an apple if you were to have a nutrition panel on that versus, you know, a candy bar. But it's but it's kind of where what what travels with with that sugar. What's more, many artificial sweeteners that aren't good for us at all can by law be excluded from the nutrition facts panel. You could be eating a food that lists no sugar, tastes super sweet, but is counterproductive to health. You have to go back to the ingredient list. That is where the information is. Got it. So what we're learning today is really read the labels. Definitely take a look at that and eat real food. Eat real food. Not too much, mostly plants. (laughs) That's it. Is today's deceptive food landscape part of the motivation behind creating Step One Foods? It, it absolutely is. I mean, part of it was to help my patients achieve specific health goals. Right. But, you know, as I, you know, alluded to earlier, we live in this dysfunctional food environment and it's really, really hard for people to do. And and so I was sending them to the grocery store, like, go, <laughs> you know, like, don't go to the restaurants, like buy things at the grocery store. And, and what I realized was I wasn't sending them to a safe place. I was sending them to, you know, the Wild West. And, and so it was, you know, look, there's so many things that, that are at fault here. You know, the, the FDA claims, which, which are good in, in intention, but they're, but they're being, you know, they're being absconded with by, by the marketing teams. The, you know, USDA and what it wants us to eat. The, you know, the farm subsidies we, we give to, to certain crops versus others, right? It's, right. Um, the, the, you know, the diet of the moment, the media, right, distorting, you know, what, you know, what the, the reality because it wants to generate clicks and, and views. So there's so many things that you could rail against and try to fix. And what I realized is to, to try and do that, it would just take too long. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> to change a law or the way a, you know, um, a government you know, government office works or government department works is, is, I mean, that takes, that takes decades. I, you know, my patients don't have decades. They need something now. And so this is, this is like, well, you know, someone's got to do something. Why not me? And here I am. Oh, that's fantastic. I really love this. Now, where can people get step one foods? Yeah. So step one foods are available online. They can find the product at step one foods dot com and there's there's um, information there about the clinical trial that was done at Mayo there's um, you know the whole full product listings there's also I, I write a blog um, every week about nutrition topics and um, and heart disease prevention you know my whole goal honestly is to put myself out of work because what I treat need not exist eighty percent of heart disease is completely preventable and the vast majority of that is driven by what we eat. So if we can just change what we eat, we can, we can, you know, eliminate heart disease as our number one killer. Now, is there anything else you'd like to add about what we discussed today? People are always, well, not always, but I think people are under the impression that you have to change everything to, to attain better health, especially when it comes to nutrition. And that's not true. I mean, our study proves that, you know, two tiny changes in your, in your diet can yield medication level, you know, effects. But, but even something like eating an apple a day seems like it's not going to do much. But over the course of a year, right, we eat every single day, multiple times a day. So all of this adds up. So an apple a day translates into three bushels of apples per year. Like, 
that starts getting really interesting, right? That's a lot of fiber, micronutrients, antioxidants, right? And, and, And if that's done in exchange for a cookie that you normally eat in the afternoon, like that's a health transformation and you just did one thing. So it doesn't have to be overwhelming and you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be better. All right. Well, thank you for your time. That was Dr. Elizabeth Clotus, a cardiologist and founder of Step One Foods. If you would like more information on what we discussed today, visit StepOneFoods.com. That's Step One, spelled O-N-E, foods.com. If you have questions regarding this program, please direct your correspondence to Public Affairs and Care of This Station. My next guest is David Bain, Executive Director of NAMI Sacramento. He's here to discuss CalHOPE, a statewide effort that offers behavioral health crisis counseling. He'll also give us tips on how to manage stress and anxiety. Thanks for being with us. Could you introduce yourself and provide a little background on what you do? Hi, my name is David Bain, and I'm the Executive Director for NAMI Sacramento. Uh, We're the local affiliate for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And are you partnering with CalHOPE? We are. Uh, we're working with CalHOPE throughout the state through the auspices of NAMI California and then local affiliates throughout the state are partnering with CalHOPE. Great. So could you tell me a little bit about CalHOPE? What is it? It's a statewide effort that offers behavioral health crisis counseling programs to communities in need, and it's run by the California Department of Healthcare Services. And why do you think it's important to talk about mental health? It's important, one, to normalize mental health. You know, we've, we've stigmatized it for so long where people have been afraid to ask for help. And if you're not reaching out, you're not going to get better. Right. And get that information to find out what it is you can do to get yourself healthy and into recovery again. Uh, so the more we talk about that, the more we normalize that, make it like any other physical health condition. We should be able to be able to get resources and assistance no matter what's going on with our bodies. Would you say mental health is just as important as physical health? Uh, yes, and it should be. There should be a parity of services, which isn't doesn't quite exist. But we're trying to get there, trying to get it there. And so, your mental health is probably even more important than physical health. Now, what are some of the things we can all do to manage stress? Uh, well, it's easy to get overwhelmed by the news, so it's okay to give yourself a break from that. It's best to maintain contact with family, friends, or others who support you via phone, text, or email. If you have a healthcare provider, call that healthcare provider if your anxiety interferes with your daily activities. It's best to treat your body nicely to impact your head health, uh, so eat healthy foods, avoid excessive alcohol, and exercise as you're able. Now, what all does CalHOPE offer? Uh, It offers a warm handoff for treatment services. Uh, It also does crisis counseling via chat, phone, virtual, and in-person focused on high-risk communities. It has a warm line, and the website has links to resources, including uh, apps to help people with anxiety. And they have a lot of messaging as far as reducing the stigma around mental health and and helping people with their uh, anxiety and uh, depression. Oh, I love that. When we are faced with things that cause stress and anxiety, any suggestions on how to deal with these? Immediately, one of the things to do is to breathe. Take deep belly breaths and and try to breathe out that stress and anxiety. Uh, If you're focusing on something in particular on the television, turn that off. The news uh, gets a lot of people wound up. And so if they can separate themselves from that, that helps. Reach out to someone, you know, communicate with someone who can understand what it is you're going through. You know, it's okay to not be okay. And stress and anxiety and depression are not uncommon to deal with. 
and they can lead to serious health problems if we don't ask for help. Now, tell us more about the mental health resources available through CalHOPE. One of those resources available is called The Playbook. It's full of stress management tips. It's free to download at calhope.org, and it's available in multiple languages. Also, uh, CalHOPE can connect you with a telephone warm line answered by people who have lived through stressful situations and persevered. And that's available 24-7 to talk and connect with people with more resources. The warm line number is 1-833-317-4673. And we've also launched a live chat feature available at calhope.org. Great. Now let's talk a little more about NAMI Sacramento. What programs and services do you offer the community? So what we have here at NAMI Sacramento is we do support groups. Uh, for both people living with mental health issues and for family members of those living with mental health issues. And the support groups are 90 minutes long and are facilitated by people who have been trained to run support groups. And they are people with lived experience. So they themselves have had their own mental health issues or are family members themselves. Uh, We also offer classes. We have a class called Family to Family and a class called Peer to Peer. And these are eight-week-long classes, one night a week for eight weeks. And they offer more information. They get more in-depth as far as uh, how to best uh, learn about the different mental health conditions that are out there, available treatments, and uh, how to best work uh, with people to uh, get healthy and get into recovery. And then we also provide a lot of presentations to the community uh, on various topics, Uh, depending upon what the audience is looking for. Basically, the idea is to provide information and also to reduce the stigma around mental illness. Now, if someone wanted more information on NAMI Sacramento, where could they go? Uh, We have a website. It's at namisacramento.org. And so they can go there and and find out lots of information there about our programs and services. And And they can also call 916-890-5467 and talk to someone. And they offer uh, help and information, not only about our programs, but also about other programs in the region. Oh, fantastic. Now, if they want more information about what we just talked about, CalHOPE, where can they go? Best to visit calhope.org or call 1-833-317-4673 and talk to someone there. Great. Thank you. That was David Bain with CalHOPE. If you would like more information on what we discussed today, visit calhope.org. That's calhope.org. If you have questions regarding this program, please direct your correspondence to Public Affairs and Care of This Station. My next guest is Julio Martinez, Executive Director with the ScholarShare Investment Board. He's here to discuss California's higher education savings program called ScholarShare 529 and their new CalKids program for low-income families. Thanks for being with us. Could you introduce yourself and provide a little background on what you do? My name is Julio Martinez, and I'm the executive director of the ScholarShare Investment Board, which oversees California's 529 College Savings Plan. Okay, so what is the ScholarShare 529 program, and what's your role with it? So as director of, uh, executive director of this uh, program, my job is to serve a board, which overall oversees the state's 529 College Savings Plan, which is a tax-efficient savings vehicle designed specifically to help families save for future educational expenses. So the name, the number 529 comes from the Internal Revenue Code, and a 529 plan is almost like uh, you can consider it the cousin of the 401k plan. So it's an investment vehicle, and like I mentioned, it's specifically designed to help people save for for college uh, or other educational expenses in the future. 
Hmm. To be honest with you, I didn't even know a program like this existed. So what are the advantages of the ScholarShare 529 account? So the advantages of a 529 plan are primarily the tax benefits. However, it's got a number of other benefits that I think families will find appealing. So the first one is that earnings that accumulate in a 529 college savings account are actually tax-free, both at the state and federal level, when you actually uh, withdraw them and use them for their intended purpose. And the intended purposes really are paying for things like tuition, fees, books, computer, and other required equipment for, for your educational pursuits, and some room and board. And so uh, that's what makes our vehicle a little different in that when you consider the tax savings and the flexibility with some of these vehicles is that families can end up with a lot more savings in the long run compared to a traditional savings account. Oh, wow. Now, is this a national program or just California-based? Uh, California has a plan, which is ScholarShare 529, but every state uh, has one in the country. And, uh, you know, people can uh, shop around and uh, look around, but California has ScholarShare 529. It's been around since 1999. And, uh, you know, we have now grown to nearly $12 billion in assets and have over, uh, you know, just under 400,000 accounts. And so we've been around for about 23 years and serving California families since then. Wow, that's great. So who can open an account? To open an account, ScholarShare 529, it's pretty much anybody who uh, is, first of all, you know, when you open an account, you need a an account owner and an account beneficiary, right? So Typically, the account owner is the parent, uh, but it can also be uh, a relative. It can be a friend. It can be a grandparent. And the beneficiary typically is a student uh, or the young person whom you want to save money for. So, But to open an account, all you need is really a Social Security number uh, or federal tax ID number and you know, for both the account owner and the beneficiary. And to open an account, all you really need is about $1, just minimum to open the account. And mind you, there's no requirements of how much you should save. And we ask families to just save as much as they can, when they can. Uh, but it really just takes about 15 minutes to open the account, and it's really, really super easy and quick. Oh, good. So what can the 529 money be spent on? I think you already touched on that a little bit, but if you wouldn't mind going in, into more detail. Sure. Since I mentioned that there's tax benefits associated with these accounts, uh, they're really designed for higher education expenses, uh, and those include tuition, fees, uh, required equipment like computer, internet, uh, those kind of items, but also room and board. And so it's really what, what typically includes, you know, just the cost of, of going to college or pursuing uh, any form of future kind of uh, educational, higher education expenses. And that includes also, you know, education at technical schools, you know, um, also, you know, apprenticeship programs. And so it's really kind of broad, but so long as that they're considered an eligible institution, uh, the families can use uh, those monies for those purposes at those institutions. Now, how can someone contribute to the ScholarShare 529 account? That's what makes uh, ScholarShare 529, I think, uh, kind of the, 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 uh, the best, what I consider the best uh, vehicle for saving for higher education. As you know, the cost of higher education continue to skyrocket year after year. And so, Families can contribute. So if you're an account owner, families can contribute to an account, typically through, you know, a checking account or savings account. Uh, but also, you know, if your employer allows it, and a lot of employers in California allow it, you can actually do it through payroll deduction. But also, we have a really neat feature that's called UGIFT. And with UGIFT, we allow families to essentially you know, share a link with their family and friends and neighbors for your child's account, and they can contribute to that account as well. So you know, when the holidays come around or when a birthday or a graduation comes around, instead of saying, hey, listen, uh, instead of buying my child an expensive gift, maybe perhaps get him a smaller gift, but contribute to his or her uh, college savings account and really, uh, you know, help that person out. Because, you know, 
higher education is expensive, and sometimes it takes, you know, a village to kind of help that person get through. And so we developed this one, you know, you gift feature that can help families, you know, raise or, or have, you know, more contributions made to the child's account. Sure. I, I love that. If you have a 529 account, can you also use other financial aid resources like scholarships, grants? Absolutely. So, you know, the one thing about financial aid that gets past people is that it's not, when you think of financial aid, not everything is a grant. A lot of times, and I think most of the time, a financial aid package includes not only grants, but also student loans yeah. in there. And so what's missing a lot of times in, in our family discussions is really the uh, the family contribution part of this, which sometimes can be financed, you know, with, uh, with, with you know, just the family budgets, but sometimes it takes some planning. And so we encourage families to save as much as they can, because there will be an estimated family contribution as part of the financial aid package. And what a 529 plan like Scholarship 529 does, it helps families kind of just save as much as they can when they can. So when the child is ready to go to college, they have the ability to kind of make that contribution without it causing a lot of inconvenience or pain, right? And so that's why we encourage families to think of a financial aid package to include savings as well. And how can families open a ScholarShare 529 account? To open an account, it's really easy. You just go on our website, which is scholarshare529.com. And on there, uh, really, it takes about 10 to 15 minutes to open the account. We just ask families to kind of come prepared a little bit to kind of have their checking or savings account information or their payroll deduction information if they want to do through payroll. And really just have to make sure that you have the information for the child and the account owner, which is usually the parent or the person opening the account. And as I mentioned before, really, you need a Social Security number or federal tax ID number, and that's all you need to open the account. Does ScholarShare offer any programs to help low-income families? Yes, yeah, ScholarShare 529 recently launched a program, a statewide program called CalKids. And CalKids is a program that offers low-income families who have children in public schools in first through 12th grade a minimum of $500. And if those children happen to also be uh, foster youth or homeless, they will get an additional $500. And that's a grant of up to $1,500 for for each student. So that's one element of it. The other element is that every newborn in California, uh, beginning July 1st of 2020, this past July, every newborn will be eligible for up to $100 in a CalKids account. So CalKids, like I mentioned before, it's a new program that, that ScholarShare 529 is running. And to learn more about that program and whether or not you are eligible, we encourage families to visit our website, calkids.org, O-R-G. Now, if they want more information on ScholarShare 529, where could they go? Yes, yeah, so to learn more about ScholarShare 529 and its various programs that we offer, we ask families to visit scholarshare529.com. Great. Thank you. That was Julio Martinez, Executive Director of the ScholarShare Investment Board. If you would like more information on what we discussed today, visit scholarshare529.com. That's scholarshare, the numbers, 529.com. If you have questions regarding this program, please direct your correspondence to Public Affairs and Care of This Station. My next guest is Amy Roberts, Division Manager of Stationary Sources at the SAC Metro Air Quality Management District. She's here to discuss the Wildfire Smoke Air Pollution Emergency Plan and how to best prepare for a wildfire. Thanks for being with us. Could you introduce yourself and provide a little background on what you do? My name is Amy Roberts. I'm a Division Manager here at the SAC Metro Air District, and I'm one of the Division Managers that's responsible for one of our key areas in the Air District. Um, In particular, I'm the manager over our 
enforcement and our permitting section, which uh, does a lot of the um, oversight um, of our businesses and those that need a permit, uh, an air quality permit. Great. Now, could you tell us a little bit about the Sacramento Metropolitan Air Quality Management District? So the SAC Metro Air Quality Management District, it's we're the local air quality district for Sacramento County. We're actually one of 35 in the state of California. So there's 35 other air districts around uh, the state. And the main responsibilities of the local air quality district is to make sure that we're meeting those federal and state air quality standards that are um, set and established. These are standards that basically say this is um, a level at which is, you know, healthy for for people and it should be below that. So um, all regions in the U.S. are trying to attain those standards to, to make sure that people are not impacted by air pollution. Now, as a Sacramento resident, I remember the heavy smoke from the campfire a few years ago. What were some of the challenges the district and our community faced because of the smoke? Anybody who lived here in Sacramento County would remember those um, smoky days um, during the campfire. It was such an anomaly. You, you can go back and, and remember that, you know, there was almost two weeks of just endless days of smoke where, you know, you could look out your window and, and barely see, um, you know, out in front of you. And it was just such an unusual time. I think it really caught everybody off guard. And not only, you know, the length of time, but also the season. It was it was November. It was cold. It was right before Thanksgiving. And so I, I think this was just a new phenomenon of that day-to-day um, smoke pollution. And it was so heavy, too. It was, you know, in the unhealthy and hazardous levels um, for day, days on end. And, and that was just unusual where, you know, maybe we'll have an air pollution event of some sort, but it would be a day, you know, maybe two. Um, in 2017, I think, you know, the Napa fires, those were one of our first experience from a, a fire that's occurring way away from us, but we're being impacted by it. But that campfire was something that definitely stood out. Um, I think locally, a lot of us just wondered what to do, you know, our, our, ourselves and our, our homes, um, you know, if you're an employer and definitely our schools were wondering, you know, what do, what do we do with, with our kids? Are we going to send them home? Is it better for them to be at home or at school? Um, if you were a person that wanted to go out and exercise, uh, should I? If I'm out, should I wear a mask? Um, if I'm an employer, should I send my employers home? Do I bring them, you know, if they work outdoors, do, do they go home? Do they come inside? You know, do I give them a mask? What, what should I do here? So I think there was just a, a general sense of what am I supposed to do when it's day after day of, of poor air quality and where do I go to find information on what to do? Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, all in all that, that campfire experience really did just bring up a whole bunch of questions. Sure. Now, I understand that because of the challenges we faced during the campfire, new legislation was put into place, Assembly Bill 661, that basically created the Wildfire Smoke Air Pollution Emergency Plan. Could you give us some background on that legislation and why it's needed? As we were just talking about the campfire and that experience and, you know, all of the the confusion and questions and who does what, you know, those were some of the things that that fire and, and the smoke from that fire really did test our local ready, readiness, mm-hmm. you know, to, to act and how prepared we were to respond um, for that multi-day air pollution emergency. Um, and it really, you know, was, was a test that we said, you know, we have room to improve. We should be better coordinated. We should be better prepared, have better tools to assist our, our residents, our schools, and our employers to provide those answers and to be able to respond quickly um, for any kind of future event that, 
you know, a long time, right? You know, science and everybody has been saying we're we're gonna we're going to suffer more and more of these. And so now that we are seeing them in actuality, um, it, it's our time to step forward and you know have something better in place to help all of us uh, respond better to answer those questions that we are facing during the campfire. So really, it's to enhance our education and our guidance to all sectors about you know when to mask, how to mask, you know, when to close schools, and how to how to prepare for those events. So how did the district develop the emergency plan? Did you work in coordination with other agencies? Yeah, absolutely we did. Um, the legislation actually required in it explicit coordination and collaboration with local agencies. Uh, our, our public health officer, Dr. Casirier, and her team at, at the public health department uh, were our coordinating partner in the emergency plan development. We also um, coordinated with Sacramento OES and other emergency services departments and all of the cities in Sacramento County. So we, we spoke with city managers and, um, you know, school um, schools, you know, were all part of our working group that, that we established. So we, we definitely um, did coordinate locally. And we, we had a lot of other stakeholders, too, that we found along the way that were instrumental, you know, our, our businesses in the area, you know, asking them what they did and um, our nonprofits, you know, how do they help during those types of events? And, you know, what are the challenges that they're all facing? It all, all of these groups were really instrumental in, in making the emergency plan um, one piece of the emergency plan. And one thing that we did along the way is develop an online survey um, that was sent out to businesses and nonprofits and our, our local public agencies just to ask those questions about, hey, what did you do in the past and what would you do in the future and how were you impacted during that time? It looks like the plan is divided into four sections. Can you share with us what is included in each section and why? Absolutely. Um, that's a good question, Cody. Um, the, the plan, it's you know, it's about a 50-page document, so um, we, we definitely wanted to have some breakpoints for people to, to go to specific sections and, and also be responsive to what the legislation was really asking for. So um, there's one section there, the, the first one, and, and it's probably the, the biggest one. It's the health protective recommendations and guidelines. That's where we really tried to break it down of, you know, gathering the information of what what are the best things that you can do before the next event. So that's all of the preparedness things that, you know, you can really educate yourself about health impacts from air quality um, or, you know, poor air quality. When smoke comes down, why do I, why do I care? Basically, what, you know, why does this matter? Why, why should I be paying attention to this? Um, but also, how do you prepare your home? How do you make sure you have, you have supplies on hand? For example, um, air filters, that's a, a really key one if you're trying to stay indoors and trying to keep your indoor air um, more clean than outside, you know, getting up-to-date air filters, making sure that they're changed uh, regularly. Um, if you can, you know, buy a portable air cleaner that you can put in a room and, you know, make an indoor space that's clean. Then we also had what to do during the event. And so there's a whole list of uh, recommendations of, you know, what you, what you should do, where you can find the air quality information, and then also because masking was such a big question and we've gone through, um, you know, the pandemic and there's a lot of questions around masking and, it, and it's different from a COVID perspective to a, an air quality pollution event like a smoke event. And um, so we wanted to make sure to, you know, include some information on masking in the plan. So that was the first section. Um, we also had three, those three other sections. Uh, again, who's the responsible agency during these types of events? And what do each of those agencies do? 
So you go there, you'll know, okay, as an air quality agency, we, we provide the information. We give that information to all of our emergency services and public health um, department so that then they can take that information and, and give their respective guidance to others, um, putting out messaging to the public, um, making, you know, if, if there's a long event, you know, is that a clean, do we need to have a, an indoor location for people to come to? So that was our, our second uh, section. Then there's a, another one that's recommendations for employers, for public agencies. So anybody who's really making decisions for others, um, you know, it's a good place to go so that, you know, you can get the best guidance um, that will protect the uh, employers or the employees in your group. So there's that section. And then the final section are strategies for vulnerable populations. Um, you know, that's it was a needed section just because vulnerable populations will um, definitely have higher risks to themselves. So there's a whole list of challenges and things that need to be thought about if you're a, a city or an organization that deals with vulnerable populations. Now, can you tell me more about the section on vulnerable populations? Who is affected and what are some of the unique challenges in addressing their needs during the smoke event? Just mentioned, yeah, that's our, our fourth section in the plan is you know, the strategies for vulnerable populations. Vulnerable populations are, you know, as I mentioned, those that are at greater risk of health impacts during a smoke event. Uh, you know, think of anybody who might have a health condition that would worsen their breathing or their heart health. Anybody with asthma, um, in particular children, um, our elderly populations, they're all at greater risk to having a, a poor outcome from, you know, breathing, poor air qualities, you know, smoke, and especially when it's a sustained event, like something like the campfire and other events we've had since then. Also think about vulnerable populations when you're thinking outdoor employer, employees. So our, our working population, that that's your job to be mostly outside. And then you overlay that with a hazardous or unhealthy air quality situation increases their exposure and increases their likeliness of having some kind of poor you know, health outcome from that. Um, and then one of one of the big ones that we talk about in the plan and you know, cities and count in our county think about are our unhealth populations. And that's a particular concern um, for anybody, again, that is outside, doesn't have access to a filtered airspace, you know, cleaner airspace. Um, they're going to be at particular risk for um, those types of health risks. And, and so that um, is something that we want to pay particular attention to. And uh, like I mentioned, you know, all of the cities in the county, they try to come up with strategies and, you know, how to reduce the impact um, to all those different populations. But it can, it can definitely be challenging. Um, you asked what are some of the unique challenges in addressing mm -hmm. their needs. For example, uh, communication. Um, that can sometimes be difficult. Um, you know, if, if you're talking maybe somebody who doesn't regularly look at uh, online resources, uh, you know, so that will be maybe a more difficult thing to get information on what the air quality is doing. Uh, also, uh, resources, uh, just, you know, smoke is very intermittent. So forecasting can, you know, it gives you a, a look forward. But if you're a planning agency or a, a city or a county thinking, do I open up that clean air space right now? Um, you know, maybe in a few hours the smoke is going to lift. Um, so it, there's, you know, some difficult decision points that all cities and counties have to think about because there's financial and staffing resources um, that would have to be devoted 
to a clean air space, for example, and you know, sometimes those resources are pretty tight. So, you know, resources, uh, transportation challenges, that's also um, another difficult one. Um, but also, you know, sometimes, you know, if you're in your home, maybe your home isn't the, the cleanest space to, to stay in and it's recommended you go somewhere else. But a lot of people just are hesitant to leave their, their own home and their own space. Um, our unhoused populations, likewise, you know, you, you have a space, even if, you know, it's outdoors, but you may not want to leave that area or you may have a pet that you want to keep with you and you're not sure that that clean air space will even allow a pet. So you're more reluctant to, you know, seek those cleaner air options. What type of outreach is the district doing to reach local schools who need to make decisions to protect students during smoke events? It was one of the trickiest spots um, during the campfire and our, our subsequent um, smoke events is, you know, our, our schools. You know, we're, we're concerned about our children um, and the level of exposure to smoke. And so that was definitely one of the, the big needs that we wanted to, to try and meet um, to give some better resources. We um, do have now videos um, for school districts, and we we have them in multiple languages. And those are really for school administrators and parents to, to look and see, okay, you know, just a guide um, to what to do um, before and during a smoke event. So we have those online videos. There's other online resources as well. Um, so we do have what we call air quality action charts, and those are our guides for schools to really quickly look at, you know, what do I do during recess? You know, do I keep the kids indoors at at what air quality level do I cancel school or when do I cancel an event or reduce an event? You know, maybe if it was two hours, you know what, we're only going to get 30 30 minutes in outdoors, but we're going to keep it short. Um, So those are all things that were considered and uh, hopefully these resources do make it easier for for schools and school administrators and teachers to, to know what to do during a smoke event. One other thing I can I'll mention also is you know the the kinds of outreach um, for schools. A lot of it is just that one-on-one communication. Um, we, for example, are the head of our agency and the um, executive director for the Sacramento County Office of Education. There, they have a direct line of communication. They've got each other's phone numbers and they're you know ready to make contact if needed um, and start the communication. Um, so there, there's definitely things in place now, an email list, so that we can quickly just send out the needed information to schools or get on a phone call really quickly so that we can talk about, you know, recommendations. It looks like one of the key things for everyone to do during a smoke event is to track air quality. Can you tell us how residents can do that? Absolutely. Uh, you are right. It's, you know, tracking air quality is something that is pretty much top of the list uh, as you're, you know, getting into a smoke event, you just really need to know how bad is it. And so there's um, one resources, one resource that we tout all the time, and it's the fire and smoke map. This was a resource that was created a couple of years ago in 2020. Um, the Environmental Protection Agency um, for the, um, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, they launched um, this fire and smoke map, and it was really a helpful tool because what it does is basically it combines our what we call regulatory monitors. Those monitors are things that, you know, we're we're tracking all the time as part of an air quality district to know what the air quality is doing in the region. Um, We have 
seven of those monitors around the county. And that gives a good idea regionally how the, you know, the county is doing. Smoke is all hit and miss based on weather and wind patterns. And so this map takes not only the regulatory monitors, but it adds in portable monitors. The good thing about it is that it does a correction factor. So basically, those regulatory monitors are, are they're, they're high grade, they're really expensive, uh, they're very precise and, and, and accurate for reading uh, air pollution. The portable sensors are less expensive, but they're still giving a good reading. It may just come with you know a little plus or minus around it versus those really high grade monitors. So um, what this map does is it now includes more air quality monitors, but it has as I said, apply this correction factor to those portable sensors so that we can rely on those sensors to be close to those regulatory monitors. And so it will give you, if you look at that map, it's going to give you a much finer grain look at what the air quality is closer to you. So if you're in Folsom, you can look there and look for the dot on that map that's closest to where you live. And that will give you a really good idea of what the air quality is closest to you um, because Folsom may have a poor air quality versus somebody in Elk Grove or Galt just because of the wind patterns for that time. Um, and that can switch uh, based on the, the, you know, the wind switches and then all of a sudden, you know, Elk Grove has the worst air quality. Uh, so it really does change ba based on the region. So the fire and smoke map is a really good tool for people to use and go to um, to find out what that local look at air quality is. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one of the, the top air quality tools uh, that we do recommend. Um, there's, there's also others. There's, you know, um, you could even purchase your own portable sensor and, you know, put that up in your backyard if you wanted something right at your, your home location or your business location. Um, there's also other air quality apps. Uh, we do have um, what we call the Spare the Air app. And that one is available to download as well, and that will give um, it'll look at the regulatory monitors, so it won't give that you know broader picture. But th those are all really good resources. Great. When reviewing the plan, the air quality action charts jumped out to me as a very valuable resource. Can you tell our listeners more about these charts and how they can use them? Absolutely. I, I yeah, I'd love to go over those just because they were one of uh, the key guides that we included and in, into the plan. Um, there's four four different action charts. Uh, they are geared toward different sectors. So there's one for residents, um, specifically talking about you know exercise and activity levels. And there's also one for uh, businesses. So if you're an employer, you can go there and get recommendations on not only you know guidance but some of the re uh, requirements. So there are. There is a state law that requires masks to be given to employees at certain different uh, air quality levels. So there's one for businesses. There's also one for schools, uh, as I think I mentioned earlier. And then um, we also have, you know, one for um, public agencies. And again, those are all, you know, there's a little bit of specificity for each one of those sectors. So uh, these air quality action charts try to look at each of those and give guidance and recommendations at different air quality levels for different air, um, uh, activities that you might be doing. So it's just really meant to be an easy one-page reference guide. So within you know, a matter of minutes, when, once you look 
at what the air quality is doing. You've checked that fire and smoke map out and, and you say, okay, it's 150 AQI. What do I do? And go to that chart, look at the column where it says 150, and you'll be able to get some guidance quickly. Can you tell us about some of the other useful tools that are available that will help our community during any future wildfire events? You know, I'll tout it again. The wildfire um, uh, smoke um, map that the EPA has put out, um, you can also go to airquality.org. That's that's our local um, agency's website, so airquality.org. And there's a link on that homepage for wildfire smoke information. That's one that I recommend going to just because there you'll find, you know, several other buttons that are they're embedded that will give you an outreach toolkit. Um, that's something that we would really love businesses and public agencies and anybody who can get the word out about what to do during a smoke event. And if you want to, you know, give people information prior to, you know, start to, you know, give people that education and training about where to go and what to do. Um, there's social media ready to go links. So you, you can just copy and paste over it, you know, something into your Twitter feed or your Facebook account for people to read. Um, you know, they, there's, they're already basically, you know, have pictures and, and quick messages um, that we want to get out there. Newsletters, template newsletters. Those are really great um access or useful tool for people to use. We're just trying to amplify that message of how to reduce exposure and and thereby keep people healthier in our community. So that outreach toolkit is there on airquality.org under the wildfire smoke information page. Other resources that you'll find there are, again, ways to promote um, the reduction of particulate pollution during smoky days. So we've got flyers that you can download. You know, one of the complaints that we get here at the um, Air District are, you know what, it's really smoky out there. Why why is my neighbor leaf blowing right now? You know, do we have to add more air pollution into it, you know, on a day like this? So, um, you know, we, there's a flyer that's been created so that it's talking about, you know, reduce landscaping activities, uh, drive less or drive slower on dirt roads. This is maybe not the day to barbecue or have, you know, a recreational fire um, in your chimenea. So there's things that we have on that wildfire smoke information page to, again, try to promote and educate and get information out there. Now, finally, how can residents learn more about wildfire preparedness and air quality topics? Well, Cody talked about a little bit the, you know, airquality.org is um, a place to go and linking into that wildfire smoke information page. Uh, there you'll find the emergency plan. Uh, you'll you'll find a link to the fire and smoke map. You'll find links to all of those air quality action charts, videos for schools. So everything I've mentioned today, um, there's also links there for data and health information. So if you are somebody who's more curious and, and wants to learn more, um, you can go there to click on a whole host of different places to go to you know, find more data on air pollution, um, find more data on forecasting. If you're, you know, wondering if there's a way for you to look out ahead, um, there's there's a lot of resources out there, you know, at the local level, but at the state level and at the federal level, there's been a lot of um, time and research being poured into how do we deal with smoke? It's, you know, obviously something that the whole state and the whole nation is now grappling with the, the amount of um, smoke and wildfires that are occurring, it, it means that a lot of people are now putting a lot of um, time and effort into creating resources for people to, to better deal with it.
Great. That was a lot of useful information. So thank you for being here. That was Amy Roberts, Division Manager of Stationary Sources at the SAC Metro Air Quality Management District. If you would like more information on what we discussed today, visit airquality.org. That's airquality.org. If you have questions regarding this program, please direct your correspondence to Public Affairs and Care of This Station. Patients battling blood cancer rely on Gift of Life Marrow Registry to provide life-saving stem cell and bone marrow transplants at a time when every minute matters. To help us continue providing our life-saving services during these unprecedented times, volunteer donors between 18 and 35 years old can request a registration kit to be delivered to their home by visiting giftoflife.org. When your kit arrives, just swab inside your cheek with cotton swabs and return in the postage page envelope to Gift of Life.